Welcome to Ulcerative Colitis, Autoimmune Healing Journey. I am your journey guide, Jay India, and I'm so happy that you are here because this is a supportive, positive environment where we can heal together. Please note, I am not a doctor or health professional in any way. If you would like to attempt something mentioned in this episode, please consult your doctor or mental health professional first. Okay, let's talk about a few fun things before we go back into that dark pit of trauma. (laughs) All right, so I have a new podcast cover. You are looking at it right now. I absolutely love this cover. I think it's more me. It's more artistic. It's much more eye-catching. And I love doing the photo shoot for this cover because the photographer made me feel comfortable and safe and The other photos he took are just incredible. They're just out of this world. I have a friend who is big in the photography world. She took a look at these pictures and she said, wow, this photographer is excellent. He captured the essence of you. So if you would like to see his portfolio, um, hire him, inquire, his name is Joe Moscato. And he works in the Hudson Valley of New York or New York. And you can reach him at this red fox photography at gmail.com. And if you don't write that down, if you're driving and you can't write it down, you know what? I'll put it in the show notes too. But definitely just DM me, email me, and I will get you his name. Also, I have a new Instagram handle at Free Spirit Podcasts. It was formerly two inches off the ground. I wanted to change it to encompass all my podcasts and the radio show. So if you're already following me at two inches off the ground, you're fine. But for those of you who are new to this podcast and you keep hearing me say episode after episode, follow me at two inches off the ground. I actually went in and changed it in all the show notes. (laughs) That's what I did while I was watching this dog movie this weekend, because otherwise I'll lose my mind. But anyway, so just follow me at Free Spirit Podcasts. That's with an S. And then I had put out a newsletter, newsletter number three, with my UC holiday menu ideas and fun snacks that we can eat. I show you the brands that I like, what I think you can eat, what I can definitely eat. I would love a little feedback if you've gotten the newsletter and you've watched it. It's 24 minutes. It's a video. I say, if you want to listen to it, listen to it. I highly recommend subscribing because I just do these newsletters when I feel like and intermittently. So they'll always pop up for you. And I do not stalk people. I do not send one out every week. I do not have the time for that. (laughs) But um, give me a little feedback. Do you like seeing me on video Is that something that's fun for you? Do you want to see me more on video in the new year? Just let me know. We have a warning for today's episode. I will be discussing many aspects of trauma, including sexual abuse and assault, self-harm, PTSD, abortion, and other topics of trauma. If you are sensitive to any subjects surrounding trauma, you may want to skip this episode or return to it at a later date. Today, we are discussing The Body Keeps the Score by Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, part two. Before we get to the episode, so far, I've given you 67 episodes and over a year and a half of free content. So please support this podcast by giving me a five-star rating wherever you listen and a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And you guys have been really killing it for me with those ratings on Apple Podcasts. I so appreciate it. 
please remember Spotify and wherever else you listen. Think about grabbing your partner's or children's phones and hitting five stars too. And also remember to hit the follow button so new apps pop up on your podcast player automatically. Today's topic is part two of The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma by New York Times bestselling psychiatrist, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. This book was published in 2014, so almost 10 years ago, and I will be discussing part five of the book entitled Paths to Recovery. I did discuss parts one through four in another episode. That would be episode 65, so you can check that out. The only thing I would recommend is please do not... overload yourself on trauma. So maybe you listen to this one and then you go back a couple days later and listen to the next one. Or maybe you don't listen to this one today because you haven't listened to episode 65. You do that first, you wait a few days, and then you listen to this one because there's a lot to absorb and you never want to re-traumatize yourself. Kolk is the founder and medical director of the Trauma Center in Brookline, Massachusetts. He's also a professor of psychiatry at Boston University School of Medicine and director of the National Complex Trauma Treatment Network. So this book is about how our body stores trauma and wreaks havoc on the body, mind, body, and soul unless we release it. This topic is vital to UC because I would say all of us have stored trauma that is wreaking havoc in our colon and our gut. And I have discussed the trauma UC connection at length in many episodes, and we're exploring it more here today. Keep in mind, I'm not sure if we can ever 100% heal ourselves, but we can certainly achieve a restoration of health and happiness. I'm an example of that, as are many of you. Some of you may have already read the book, others not. Either way, it's just a good refresher. I mean, who doesn't want a refresher on trauma, (laughs) right? And it is a controversial book a little bit. Not everyone agrees with what Kolk has to say. In fact, there was an example where he talks about aggression, and I did not agree with what he thought was a good story about aggression and how the survivor was able to get over their aggression. I I didn't think that sounded right to me, so I left that out. So you have to read this book and be discerning and see what works for you and what doesn't work for you, just like everything else in life. I skimmed this part of the book because a lot of the information was outdated. It was published in 2014. So he talks a lot about healing modalities that we know a lot about today, such as meditation, yoga. He goes into case studies. If you want to know and have confirmation that yoga and meditation work, this is definitely the book for you because he backs it up with all sorts of examples. This would be good for any of you that are practitioners and you want solid evidence. And let's say you want to put it on your website and obviously credit Kulk, that would be a good way to do it. Use it with your clients, that type of thing. And obviously, again, credit Kulk. The side note is you will hear me flipping pages of the book because I'm going through and talking about everything. So let's start. Here's what he says about the road to recovery and what that entails. Nobody can treat a war or abuse, rape, molestation, or any other horrendous event. For that matter, what has happened cannot be undone, but what can be dealt with are imprints of trauma on mind, body, and soul. 
The crushing sensations in your chest that you may label as anxiety or depression, the fear of losing control, always being on alert for danger or rejection, the self-loathing, the nightmares and flashbacks, the fog that keeps you from staying on task and from engaging fully in what you are doing, being unable to fully open your heart to another human being. Trauma robs you of the feeling that you are in charge of yourself, of what I will call self-leadership in the chapters to come. The challenge of recovery is to reestablish ownership of your body and your mind of yourself. This means feeling free to know what you know and to feel what you feel without becoming overwhelmed, enraged, ashamed, or collapsed. Okay, yeah, I couldn't agree with that anymore. So you want to go to a therapist that is very experienced in healing trauma. I will talk about this a little bit later when I go through the book, but that's so important because he talks about how you can't treat the event. You cannot treat that traumatic event. You can only treat the aftermath in your mind, body, soul. And I thought that was really important. Then he makes a simple but powerful statement on how to resolve trauma. The fundamental issue in resolving traumatic stress is to restore the proper balance between the rational and emotional brains so that you can feel in charge of how you respond and how you conduct your life. That's what we're all trying to do here. If we want to change post-traumatic reactions, we have to access the emotional brain and do limbic system therapy, repairing faulty alarm systems and restoring the emotional brain to its ordinary job of being a quiet background presence that takes care of the housekeeping of the body, ensuring that you eat, sleep, connect with intimate partners, protect your children and defend against danger. So that's a lot of our problem is we are on (laughs) such high alert, even if you don't realize it. And I don't mean that you walk out into the street and you're just like, ah, I'm, I'm on such high alert. That could mean what I was talking about last time in episode 65, where I walk into a room and I'm scanning the room. I am waiting for someone to reject me. I am waiting for someone to treat me badly, that type of thing. It may be more subtle than you think. And to have your body in this fight or flight all the time, well, that's, as we talked about last time, that's how you get autoimmune. Then he says, traumatized people are often afraid of feeling. It is not so much the perpetrators who hopefully are no longer around to hurt them, but their own physical sensations that are now the enemy. Apprehension about being hijacked by uncomfortable sensations keeps the body frozen and the mind shut. Even though the trauma is a thing of the past, the emotional brain keeps generating sensations that make the sufferer feel scared and helpless. It is not surprising that so many trauma survivors are compulsive eaters and drinkers, fear making love and avoid many social activities. Their sensory world is largely off limits. This really describes me, especially with the compulsive eating, because I used to describe it as having an addictive personality, but I'm not addicted to anything else. So I don't have an addiction to alcohol, drugs, gambling, shopping, anything. It's just more compulsive eating and chewing. 
for example, I used to chew gum nonstop. I mean, really, really badly where people, if I didn't have a piece of gum in my mouth, they would actually say that. That's how compulsive I was. I'd chew a lot of gum at once. I'd chew on pens. I'd chew on all these things. And as I became more self-aware, I realized that I have two internal battles going on, right? I have that internal battle of the mold toxicity where mold loves sugar. And then I have that compulsive eater part of me where if I really love something, I will eat it to nauseum. And usually it's something that is sugar or carbohydrates. It's never, <laughs> it's never a green smoothie, guys. <laughs> it's always something. It's always something yummy. So I decided to test myself this week, actually. And I go into this bakery and I buy my husband bread. And I'm always looking at this chocolate caramel cake. I'm not even into caramel. I am not even enticed by anything else except for this cake. It just has this beautiful look to it. I don't think about it until I enter the bakery, but just like, oh man, I have to have a piece. I have to have a piece. I buy a piece. I take it to my car, take out a fork. And what I decided was I'm not going to eat it. I'm just going to chew to get the taste and spit it. And that's what I did. And let me tell you something, it wasn't even good. It didn't even taste like food to me. It had all the, you know, the, the buttercream icing and the, and the chocolate cake that has toxins and gluten and all that. It's not, it's not a bakery where it's very homemade, or at least it didn't taste that way. It was pretty gross. So I was turned off by it. But the old me would have not only eaten that piece, but I would have gone back and bought the whole cake and probably eaten all of that. So I think that's just something that is unfortunately a result from the sexual abuse. And I'm realizing that, yes, it is under my control and it's in my mindset to stop doing that, but you have to have the self-awareness first. And I think I finally do. So that's nice. It was nice to see that I'm improving. I also wanted to talk about how he said fear of making love, being a sexual abuse survivor, that's very common. Unless you feel very safe with your partner, then sexual situations can be really tricky and really uncomfortable. And I definitely had sexual hangups back in the day. <laughs> I feel bad for some of the guys that I dated because I didn't know, I didn't have the self-awareness. And even today with sex, even though I feel like I have a good, healthy sex life, there's still some times where I'm not, I don't so much get flashbacks to what happens, but there'll be a touch or there'll be a sensation or there'll be a situation where I'm like, oh my God, I, I don't, I'm not in the mood. I don't want to do this. And I think that's just, again, the idea of, yes, you can heal yourself to a certain point. And yes, maybe that will continue to heal, but the expectation of 100% healing, I'm not so sure. So that's something that, you know, I talk about with my partner and that I can be vocal about. And it's just good to know. It's good to have that self-awareness. I loved when he said, people who avoid many social activities, that is 100% me. I always feel like I'm ready to be rejected. As I talked about in episode 65, I'm constantly scanning the room. I don't have the open heart that I wish I had. I really feel protective of myself, protective of my space, my feelings, um, that something will happen. And I'm sure that is a result from the abuse. 
I love how he defines mindfulness, becoming aware of how your body organizes particular emotions or memories opens up the possibility of releasing sensations and impulses you blocked in order to survive. John Kabat-Zinn, one of the pioneers in mind-body medicine, founded the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction MBSR program at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center in 1979, and his method has been thoroughly studied for more than three decades. As he describes mindfulness, one way to think of this process of transformation is to think of mindfulness as a lens, taking the scattered and reactive energies of your mind and focusing them into a coherent source of energy for living, for problem solving, for healing. I think that's amazing. I, I cannot think of a better <laughs> definition for mindfulness. Then he talks about EMDR, eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. And that allows survivors to access memories of the traumatic event without being overwhelmed by them. When the brain areas whose absence is responsible for the flashbacks can be kept online while remembering what has happened, people can integrate their traumatic memories as belonging to the past. I think a lot of you guys have done EMDR. I have not yet. That is something that I want to explore. He talks about it in depth and he says how great it is. I know other people who've done it for reasons of trauma and they have said so many good things about it and it has helped them incredibly. So definitely look into EMDR if you can. I want to do an episode on it, but I want to try it first and I want to go into my experience on it. Then he talks about cognitive behavioral therapy and it's really fascinating. I have actually done CBT and I felt it worked for me with anxiety at the time because the way I did it, the therapist had me imagine the worst thing possible. And then we worked down from there and how I would handle the situation. And to this day, that helped me. That was probably done 25 years ago. And sometimes I'll still go back to that session. However, he said with trauma, CBT has not been that successful. That actually really surprised me. He said that it really hasn't worked that well, that a lot of the volunteers have dropped out because it just didn't do anything for them or it re-traumatized them. So just be careful of CBT for trauma. He then discusses other approaches to healing trauma, such as the Feldenkrais method. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that right. It's F E. L-D-E-N-K-R-A-I-S, Feldenkrais, Feldenkrais. It's close to yoga, but more of an emphasis on taking the effort out of doing poses and sensing and feeling into the body instead of doing the poses perfectly. It's supposed to work really well for trauma, so you may want to look into that. I've heard of it before. I've actually seen videos on it. And it looks interesting. It's something that I might want to explore later on. Obviously, yoga. And then he goes into a section about hallucinogenics like LSD and ecstasy, et cetera, all the stuff we know. And then he has a really good quote on being at war with yourself. As long as you keep secrets and suppress information, you are fundamentally at war with yourself. Hiding your core feelings takes an enormous amount of energy. 
It saps your motivation to pursue worthwhile goals, and it leaves you feeling bored and shut down. Meanwhile, stress hormones keep flooding your body, leading to headaches, muscle aches, and problems with your bowels or sexual functions, and irrational behaviors that may embarrass you and hurt the people around you. Only after you identify the source of these responses can you start using your feelings as signals of problems that require your urgent attention. That's what we are going through. I love in this book how if you listen to episode 65, he talks constantly about the bowels. He's constantly talking about people who have this trauma that is just not being released causes all these problems with the bowels. And it's funny because he never really talks about migraines. He never talks, I mean, from what I've seen in the book, he never talks much about migraines or sinus infections or anything. It's always about the bowels. So that really says something, right? We are really stuffing trauma in there and it makes sense why it's wreaking havoc. He also stresses that your therapist should be trained in dealing with trauma because he talks about how he had in his early days of being a therapist, someone come in and talk about the Holocaust and he was not prepared because he was a young therapist And his father had talked about when they grew up in Holland, how the father saw a young boy, young Jewish boy, I believe it was murdered by Nazis on his front lawn. And just from that secondhand story and the father's reaction and retelling of it, Kulk remembered that and could not handle the session and ended the session because he was a young therapist. And obviously now he can handle all that. But I thought that was very interesting. And you'll have therapists who will not deal with certain topics and they shouldn't if they're not ready to deal with them. If they're not ready to deal with talking about sexual abuse and rape and and all of that, then they shouldn't. So you need to find a therapist who is extremely schooled in trauma. And you have to be careful because nowadays you go on these websites and they have all the online talk therapy and that's the new buzzword is trauma. So they'll say, oh, I'm schooled in childhood trauma and blah, blah, blah. You need to really research and make sure that they know what they're doing. Otherwise, they could re-traumatize you. So just make sure you do your research around a really good therapist and then make a connection with one who's good for you. Then he talks about tapping, which I'm sure many of you do and many of you know, but just in case, I just want to put it out there. According to Everyday Health, tapping or EFT, emotional freedom technique, is a mind-body therapy that draws on the traditional Chinese medicine, TCM, practice of acupuncture. And it is used today as a self-help approach in modern psychology. It involves tapping key acupressure points, acupoints, on the hands, face, and body with your fingertips while focusing on uncontrollable feelings or concerns and using positive affirmations to neutralize those feelings according to EFT International. I've tapped, I tap every once in a while, beware, it can bring out a lot of repressed feelings and anger 
People often do it in fearful situations. For example, you'll see people who fly on airplanes and they're scared to fly and they'll be tapping in their seat. If you see someone like tapping on their forehead, tapping in between their eyes, tapping above their lip, I can't remember all the points, uh, tapping on their collarbone, that's what they're doing. And it really does help. I think it really helps with releasing trauma and fear, but you have to make sure you're doing it in a very safe situation. You have to make sure, you know, you're not doing it right before you go to Thanksgiving dinner and you want to freaking murder everyone because you're tapping about your family and then you're seeing your family. So just be forewarned on that. I used to tap while I drove, which was fine. You have to, of course, be safe and keep your eyes on the road. So if I had a long road trip, I'd do it. But by the end, I might be angry. So that's not great. So just so you know. I recommend the book, The Tapping Solution. That is the tapping Bible if anyone is interested. He then talks about neurofeedback. Neurofeedback is often used as a treatment for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD. Neurofeedback aims to change the way the brain responds to certain stimuli. It's also been used to treat epilepsy, anxiety, depression, and insomnia, among other mental health disorders. And here is what Kolk says about the future of neurofeedback, which is probably happening now because he wrote this book 10 years ago. During the past few years, my lab has studied the effects of neurofeedback in traumatized children and adults. Our findings confirm the vast potential of neurofeedback to make a substantial difference in people's lives. 20 sessions of neurofeedback resulted in a 40% decrease in PTSD symptoms in a group of participants with chronic histories of trauma who had not significantly responded to talking or drug therapy. Most intriguing was the marked effect of neurofeedback on executive functioning, the capacity to plan activities, to anticipate the consequences of one's actions, to move easily between one task and another, and to feel in control over one's emotions, about a 60% increase. To my knowledge, no other treatment has achieved such marked improvement in executive functioning, which predicts how well a person will function in relationships, in school performance, and at work. That's pretty cool. So if neurofeedback is something that you want to look into, I thought that was cool. He was saying that was the future and the future is now, so why not? He then talks about the theater of war, which I really loved. This is really interesting. Nick's transformation was not the first time I'd witnessed the benefits of theater. In 1988, I was still treating three veterans with PTSD whom I'd met at the VA. And when they showed a sudden improvement in their vitality, optimism, and family relationships, I attributed it to my growing therapeutic skills. Then I discovered that all three were involved in a theatrical production. Wanting to dramatize the plight of homeless veterans, they had persuaded playwright David Mamet, who was living nearby, to meet weekly with their group to develop a script around their experiences. Mamet then recruited Al Pacino, Donald Sutherland, and Michael J. Fox to come to Boston for an evening called Sketches of War, which raised money to convert the VA clinic where I'd met my patients into a shelter for homeless veterans. Standing on a stage with professional actors speaking about their memories of the war 
in reading their poetry was clearly a more transformative experience than any therapy could have offered them. So I found that really fascinating that being in a theater program really helped. But if you think about some of the best actors are really bearing their soul, so that makes sense. And then you're doing it through a character, which probably helps. And I just found that a very cool thing to do. He also goes on to talk about Estonia, which is a country to the west of Russia and to the south of Finland. I lived there for two years. It is a former Soviet republic. And he talks about the singing revolution there, which is pretty cool and how not only theater helps, but community helps. Koch talks about how the Estonians put together the singing revolution. In June 1987, they got together in the festival song grounds and they began to sing patriotic songs that were forbidden for half a century of the Soviet occupation. And the song fests and protests continued. And on September 11th, 1988, 300,000 people, about a quarter of the population of Estonia, gathered to sing and make a public demand for independence. By August 1991, the Congress of Estonia had proclaimed the restoration of the Estonian state. And when Soviet tanks attempted to intervene, people acted as human shields to protect talents, radio and TV stations. When I lived in Estonia, they talked about the singing revolution a lot. It was a huge, huge part of their culture and reclaiming their country and absolutely a beautiful part of it. It's very inspiring to hear. It was very inspiring to live amongst people who had gone through some of the most horrific trauma and challenges people can. Their country was occupied time and time again by the Germans. And then again, the Nazis tried to occupy them. And then in World War II, the Russians did occupy them. They became independent. I lived in Estonia uh, when it, and it still is independent, but when it was and still is independent, but they are under constant threat by Russia today in 2023. And there are people who are so fiercely strong and independent It was very inspiring to be around. So the reason that Kolk talks about this example is because it's the idea of forming community and having that theater of community and then rising above challenges. And that is his point in you need community. Okay, so Kolk's final words. Trauma constantly confronts us on our fragility and with man's inhumanity to man but also with our extraordinary resilience. I have been able to do this work for so long because it drew me to explore our sources of joy, creativity, meaning, and connection, all the things that make life worth living. I can't begin to imagine how I would have coped with what many of my patients have endured, and I see their symptoms as part of their strength, the ways they learn to survive. And despite all their suffering, many have gone on to become loving partners and parents, exemplary teachers, nurses, scientists, and artists. Most great instigators of social change have intimate personal knowledge of trauma. Oprah Winfrey comes to mind, as do Maya Angelou, Nelson Mandela, and Ellie Wiesel. Read the life history of any visionary and you will find insights and passions that came from having dealt with devastation. The same is true of societies. Many of our most profound advances 
grew out of experiencing trauma, the abolition of slavery from the Civil War, Social Security in response to the Great Depression, and the GI Bill, which produced our once vast and prosperous middle class from World War II. Trauma is now our most urgent public health issue, and we have the knowledge necessary to respond effectively. The choice is ours to act on what we know. This is a good way to end the episode because, yeah, you have to remember that some of these people we look up to, we admire, we hold on a pedestal, they've been through horrendous trauma. Colt gave a case study in this book where he talked about, and this is going to be graphic, you guys, this is a very graphic example of a woman he treated who got pregnant. I think she was around 14 years old. She was raped. And I believe she was raped by a family member. She went to her mother and told her what happened. And the mother forced her to have an abortion on their kitchen table. And the mother was the one who gave the abortion. I can't even imagine the amount of trauma that that woman endured. I mean, when you break down what that traumatic event is, it's horrifying. You go to your mother for something that's not your fault. Your mother not only violates you in a horrible way, on top of it, you have someone in your family who is molesting you. On top of that, you have no safety, you have no security. I can't imagine how this woman survived this. The fact that she did not take her own life, I can't believe it. Colk talks about her and says that she is doing better today, or at least in 2014. She's not fully healed. Who would fully heal from that? But she is living a better life. She's improving. And I just look at that example because if someone like that can heal and choose to heal and choose to go into the light, that's inspiration for me. That's inspiration for all of us. Again, that example has so many layers of trauma to unpeel that it would take three episodes. So the fact that someone who's endured that much trauma is surviving, is improving their life, is confronting their trauma and is healing, we can do it too. All of you can do it. I can do it, you can do it, and we are doing it together. In my household, when we have a perfect shit, you know when it slides out of the body. It's the perfect color and solidly formed, and you're so proud of yourself that you turn around on the toilet and go, wow, we call that a green heart. I wish everyone a green heart day.